Hello and welcome to the Motivational Interviewing and Beyond webinar. This is Joel Porter on behalf of Steve Rolnick and Angela Watkins. Um, I'd like to uh, welcome you to our second episode in the second season, The Therapeutic Cocktail, Can Blending Approaches Lead to Better Outcomes? In this uh, conversation, we had uh, Dr. Alan Zukoff, Dr. Terry Moyers, Dr. Chris Wagner, and Kathy Gumas. Um, talking with us about um, psychotherapy and how blending approaches and psychotherapy integration, the, the ups and downs, the pros and cons of it. And we had some good questions and discussion from people in the audience. So we hope you enjoy and uh, please share it with your friends. An initiative. Okay. Hi, Cara from down the road. <laughs> All right, Steve, let's kick it into gear. Now let's do it because. Um, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Well, what, all right. Let's well, go. Welcome, everybody. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to the um, MI and Beyond webinar. Uh, this is our March episode, so to speak. Um, I'm Joel Porter, and I'm, I'm here with Steve Rolnick, Alan Zukoff, and Chris Wagner. Um, hopefully Terry Moyers will be joining us. Um, all these international time changes, things, things mix around, but we are so honored that, um, that y'all showed up. So, um, I'm Joel. I am in Gold Coast, Australia. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm an MI guy. And, um, I've just been having a grand time hanging out with Steve this past year, doing these, um, webinars every month. Steve, I'll pass it over to you. Hello, greetings. My name is Steve Rolnick. I'm uh, sitting here in Cardiff, Wales. I come from South Africa, originally clinical psychologist, and uh, I've been involved with motivational interviewing, one school of therapy um, for probably 30, 40 years, but I'm beginning to seriously doubt some of the journeys I've been on, and that's the purpose of today's webinar. Um, so I'm looking forward to it very much. All right. Alan, you want to do an introduction? Sure. Uh, I'm Alan Zukoff. I'm uh, here in Red Bank, New Jersey, at the northern end of the New Jersey shore of the, in, in the U.S. Uh, and I am a clinical psychologist, also uh, uh, not in, involved with MI not quite as long as Steve, but uh, over several decades, uh, and um, have done a great deal of work integrating MI with other forms of therapy in research settings. I was for a couple of decades uh, at the University of Pittsburgh in the departments of psychiatry and psychology. And uh, most of my research focused on questions about how do we integrate or use or adapt or blend MI with other methods for helping people with a variety of problems. Cool. Dr. Wagner. We can't hear you. Hello, how about now? There you Microphone go. would help. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Wagner. Nice to see you all. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever, nighttime, whatever it might be for you. 
my background's clinical psychology. I came to motivational interviewing a while back. I've got a little wear and tear on me, uh, but like other people through other uh, pathways, other routes that, that, that led me to MI. So in a way it's always been, MI has been the integration into practice I was doing before and helped provide a springboard kind of moving forward. But overall, I'd say I'm just still learning to talk to people. Or Steve, I should say talk with people. Talk with people. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Steve, do you want to say a little bit about um, the Guardians before we get into all this? Yeah, and I'll put the URL into the chat line. Into the chat line, I put the URL to a project in Cape Town in South Africa, which we on the MI and Beyond webinar series support. So we offer this free, uh, but we ask you in return to be brave and bold and to click on that URL and to trust us that what is going on in uh, uh, that project is something very, very special. Okay. It's in one of the most violent townships in, in, in Cape Town, South Africa, where we have a link with its founder, Ralph Bovers. We're not going to show a video today, but towards the end of the webinar, before we close down, we'll um, remind you again. And you've just got to click onto that URL. And if you've enjoyed the webinar, or if you're, even if you're excited about it beforehand, just click on that and donate whatever pennies you like. I, you can trust me that what Ralph does is something special. The money goes directly out into the field. And if you like, it's a social action project that is designed to heal a community in poverty. And the healing forces take a number of directions. And it's special, as you'll see if you explore that website. So thank you very much, Joel. Absolutely. No, I, I, just, I just want to second that and um, you know, there, there's no donation that's too small um, because it all goes straight back into the community. Um, okay, well, a little bit of housekeeping before we get going. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation um, and we're going to talk about uh, blending approaches, not only therapies, but other approaches, because I know we have people, you know, working in school working in education, working in corrections, working in sports, about, about you know, the, what, is the, um, what are the benefits of stepping outside of our, um, our usual approaches and looking beyond what we might think about as ways of helping people. Um, you know, we're gonna do our best not to sound like clinical psychologists. We've promised that to Steve. Um, and uh, I, I did not make that. I did not make that no, promise, Joel. I just want to be really okay. clear. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll do the best I can to uh, interpret what Alan says. Um, but Terry, <laughs> if you're out there and you're looking to get in, let us know when you're here. Just come on in and join the conversation. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna have a chat. We're gonna we're gonna see, um, you know, where it goes. And then we're going to do what we usually do at the end. We're going to open it up for questions and invite people to come on board and join us. Um, I know I'd love to hear what Paul Earnshaw has to say, because um, I know he signed in. So if you stick around, Paul, I'm going to promote you to panelist. Um, but what I thought I would do is since we do have um, 
Steve with us. And and uh, as I was saying earlier, that um, if I could be sitting in a pub right now with these three men and we could have this conversation, I'd be over the moon. Um, but, but maybe we'll start a little bit, Steve, just kind of having a conversation with you, um, particularly about what your thoughts are on blending approaches and, and how you and, and Bill Miller thought about motivational interviewing and now, and now you put it together. Cause I can remember at a, at a mint forum, maybe I dreamt this, but I'm pretty sure I heard uh, Bill Miller say it, that he thought motivational interviewing was about 98% Carl Rogers and 2% other. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering about, I mean, the, the chance encounter that the two of you have that's ended up becoming motivational interviewing is how did you have that conversation about creating or developing this thing called motivational interviewing? How did that unfold? Yeah, but do you think before we start, we can just clarify what we're talking about, Joe? Yeah. Since it is a little bit like you like to feel like we're in a pub somewhere and we're in a bar that you, you know, so it's that relaxed. So can I just interrupt you and can I ask you to clarify? Oh, there are all these different schools of therapy and counseling. Is that right? That's, and you are concerned about the fact that they sit in separate silos and that wouldn't it be a good idea if they were integrated more? Is that correct? So would Yes. Okay. Okay. Can I, can I, can I just raise two points before we get into MI, motivational interviewing talk? One is this word blending and your reference to cocktail, which might be because you were imagining we were in a bar. Okay. But the reference to blending a cocktail suggests that you just get everything together and you shake it up. Okay. And then you get what? Okay. And I'm not sure blending is the right word. Okay. So I'm not right from the beginning. I want to say, I'm not sure that we want to throw the baby with the bathwater, whatever the phrase is. I think there is a case for specialist focus where skilled people focus on particular things. Okay. So yep. cocktail blending might not be quite the right word, the right image to have, but we still have a problem with these separate silos. And I think, I'll be very interested to know whether our friends, Alan and Chris and all the people here actually believe that this is a good idea. Okay. I don't want to polarize it, but like, I think it's so flawed. Okay. So I'm in a state of conflict. Okay, Joel, because on the one hand, I think this is very flawed. And on the other hand, there's a case for a specialist focus. And I don't know how to resolve it. And I hope that in the course of this webinar, we're going to come up with some potential resolution. So I wanted to say that from the beginning. You know what I mean? Am I making yep. sense, Joel? Or am I, is this too big? You're making, sense, you're making sense to me. I mean, yeah. I'll just want to jump in and go. Okay, I think well, it's a good idea to back up and unpack it a little bit. Okay. And then can I say one more thing before we talk about MI? because I'm Certainly. weary of leaping into the very silos that, that you know, have caused the problem in the first place, which is that inside me is uh, a very fluid and flexible 
I think I like to think a fluid and flexible person who can respond to the needs of people in front of me. So I don't have purest MI in my forehead. Okay. And it'll be very interesting to listen out for, particularly with people like Alan Zakoff, who's with us, Chris Wagner's with us on the screen and many others. They are quiet, silent integrationists, I suspect. Okay. I've got a feeling that they are, right? Alan has already made a reference to this. Chris did as well, right? And those two people have inspired me beyond any words that I can use, okay, to think more broadly and to get out of the silo. So we've got a brilliant opportunity now to go, okay, so what does it mean to jump out of the silo? Okay, what does it actually mean? Okay, if we had a nice way to think about it, Joel, let's imagine there's a group of newly green counselors or practitioners who want to get involved in helping people and they're in the room next door. What are we going to go and teach them? Okay, are we going to go and teach them a silo, just one silo, or are we going to teach them something else? And what is that something else? Now, I've got some answers to that, as I'm sure you guys do, but I, do, I just raise that as a question. Okay. Can I have one final rant, Joel? Absolutely, Steve. Okay, and then we can talk MI if you want to, but then I'll maybe keep quiet and see what other people think, okay? What about the recipients? Yeah, there's a group, What you know, here's a group of experts and psychologists and all these people. What about the recipients? Okay, and now this is where I'll get serious. I think it is a, nothing short of a tragic, the way arrogant, professionally pompous psychologists, often, they're not always, psychiatrists, have constructed these silos without paying adequate attention to the needs of the recipients. And so what you have is what I had out here in the rare outbreak of Welsh sunshine, a friend of mine saying, look, my partner's been sexually abused as a kid. Can you help me work out who she should see? Okay. Complete confusion, right? No sense of, of and we live in a small, fairly close-knit community in the small city, right? They they're completely at sea as to who they should see, why, and why. Okay. And I, I suspect that kind of conversation is replicated worldwide. And it's our singular failing that we haven't been able to reach out to people with a clear sense of what helpfulness means. Okay. And how they can get it. So bang, end of my rant. <laughs> I've raised a few questions, right? And so if you want to talk about MI, you can do it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Joel. Have I have I rocked? The no, not at all, man. Not at all. No, I was just thinking of MI as a starting point of a much broader conversation. Yeah, this is um, a, yeah. And but I but I but but what you're doing is you're taking it to a whole other level. I thought that's what we you wanted to talk about blending. Okay. Now the reference you made was I think to Bill and I meeting and what happened there. And I think what excite, excites you still is the fact that it was 
a blending of sorts did take place where we brought together non-directive and directive, if you like, or non-directive and, and, and purposeful, or I don't know how you want to present it. What was it? Client-centered and directive. We brought that together. No, no, that was, well, in the States, the whole debate was directive and non-directive therapy. Correct. And that yeah, happened so in a motor car. It happened in a motor car. Okay, and I can tell you the story because I remember the motor car and the drive. Let's hear a little bit of the story. I don't the think story. I'm the only one that would be interested in it. Yeah, yeah. Bill and I didn't construct motivational interviewing together. I think we failed to understand the influences on Bill. Okay. Bill wrote this paper in 1983. Okay. And I, was, I read it and I was training people and I had my own very personal reasons why motivational interviewing made sense. And I'll be happy to speak to those very personal experiences if I'm bold enough, because we're in a bar and I've had a drink or two. Okay. <laughs> Next round's on me. Okay, man. But Bill came into that, I think, very influenced by Mansell Patterson. Okay who was a great human being. I haven't read much about Mansell Patterson, but I do remember him independently in the addictions field back in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay, So I think Bull was very influenced, not just by Rogers, but by Mansell Patterson. Okay, And so there were influences on, on Bull, and he wrote this paper, and then we met. Motivational interviewing had already been formulated. And all, all he and I did, or all I did, was encourage him to go deeper and to polish a jewel, okay? It was very rough cut, which was why I persuaded him to write a book on it. I wanted him to write the book, not me, but then he invited me into the process, okay? We were in a car having run the very first workshop on motivational interviewing together for trainers, and it was in Santa Fe. So this is, you've got to fast forward 10 years, okay? And we were driving through the deserts outside Santa Fe, and I said to Bill, okay, tell me what motivational interviewing is, because we'd had what was a pretty difficult few days with the first motivational interviewing trainers workshop, and it was all over the place. Okay, it really was all over the place. People mostly interpreted what we were doing as, as client centered counseling. Okay, and I said to him, You tell me what motivational interviewing is because I don't think it's just client centered counseling, and they've misunderstood us. So he spoke for a while, and I just said, Look, it sounds like it's both client centered and directive. And he said, No, that's it. So I said, well, why don't we write a tiny little paper, just a few pages that clarifies that? And we did. And I think it was called What is Motivational Interviewing? And it went into the same journal that had produced his original paper. So that's one answer to, uh, you know, your historical query. But I do think it's, it, it's, it's more than just the way that, this is more than just about directive and client-centered at the same time. I think there were other forces from, as I say, from Mansell Patterson's work yeah. on, on resistance. I think a lot of it came from that, but 
you know, I, I know Alan Zakoff will know and Chris Wagner will know more about Patterson's work than I do because I believe they are secret, quiet integrationists. Um, yep. And I've, I've got one other story, but I'll maybe... I'm, I'm a bit irritated with this subject, to be honest. Yeah. So, so just for the record, Steve, the reason I put blending together because it sounded better than with a cocktail. And I didn't want to say psychotherapy integration because it sounded more psychologist oriented. And I was trying to be clever with the title. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not wedded to a blended cocktail, just so you know. I knew you wouldn't be. It was just, you couldn't help the barroom image and metaphor. No, not with you lot. Alan, what do you think? Where are you at with this conversation so far? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a that's a broad question, Joel. You, it's a dangerous question to ask me. Uh, such a broad question. Uh, I can go in different directions. Intentional. I'll just <laughs> say a few things, and you'll stop me when I've said enough. Um, so certainly, you're right, Steve. At least about me, uh, that that I am a psychotherapy integrationist. Um, I, 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 and I'd say probably not that silent about it, or maybe not as loud about it as I as I might be. Um, I started as a purist, but uh, and and I was trained psychodynamically and uh, it, it, with client-centered and psychodynamic uh, 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 practices, uh, a kind of humanistic version of dynamic therapy, and um, I was enough of a purist that in the very first uh, treatment research study I participated in as a psychodynamic psychotherapist working with people with cocaine addiction, which was comparing dynamic therapy, cognitive therapy, and traditional drug counseling. This is a multi-site study sponsored by NIDA in the U.S. in the early 90s. Um, uh, I, I passed an office where a bunch of the cognitive therapists were talking with each other, ducked my head in, and I said, cognitive therapy is the devil. And I kept going. And at the time, I really meant it. Uh, I said it lightly, but meant it. I believed at the time, as many dynamic therapists did, and, and those who were around long enough remember the, the intense rivalry and, and hostility between cognitive and behavioral therapy and psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, so I think when we talk about psychotherapy integration now, it's hard, unless you were there at the time, it's hard to remember or even to be aware of how much the idea of integra psychotherapy integration was radical at the time. Uh, the dynamic therapist hated the behavior therapist. The behavior therapist had contempt for the dynamic therapists. The, the humanistic therapists thought they were all nuts. Uh, you know, the third force model. Um, and I think we've come a very long way since then is what I really want to say. And the only thing I'll, I'll stop, I'll say one more thing and stop for myself. For me, what actually led me out of my purist mentality was motivational interviewing. Ah. Because am I, uh, the, I, I swore that when Joel invited me to be part of this panel, I would I would put this, get this story in early. So I'm going to tell it briefly <laughs> because I think it's important. Um, many of you know Hal Arkowitz uh, or know of Hal Arkowitz. Hal, and you mentioned influences, Steve. Hal was, yeah. as many of you know, uh, one of Bill's teachers in graduate school. And he was uh, a prominent 
leading member of the psychotherapy integration movement decades ago when the idea of psychotherapy integration was a radical idea, when they actually had to form a society to try to bring people together from the dynamic and behavioral uh, and, and cognitive behavioral schools and, and silos. Um, and uh, as, as many of you know, Hal, uh, after being Bill's teacher, became his student in the sense of deciding to learn motivational interviewing and then to, in, to use motivational interviewing himself and to began writing about it and uh, particularly in the area of depression. And at a conference uh, that, that I attended when we were talking about MI, Hal said, motivational interviewing is a blend of client-centered counseling and behavior therapy not cognitive therapy. And I think he's right about that. And yeah. if, if we were having a different conversation, I would go off for 20 minutes about that, but I won't. Um, but MI is itself an integrative therapy, an integrative model. It takes two models that, and this is this client-centered and directive thing that were originally thought of as opposites, as polar opposites, as, as un, you know, integratable and integrates them. And so when I first learned MI, I was trained to be, whether dynamic or client-centered, to be non-directive in the extreme. Any sort of advice, any sort of direction to the client was anathema to me for the way I was trained. And then I started learning MI and this idea that you could be both person-centered and at certain moments share information provide guidance or advice and do it in a client-centered way. And this was for me, a rather mind exploding <sighs> experience. And it was that experience that opened me to a much broader variety of models and the recognition that I could in fact learn from and integrate the wisdom and therapeutic strategies from different approaches and that that would be better for the people that I was trying to help. Wow. Wow. And I must, I must confess that I'm, you know, uh, how can I say, really pleased in the way you describe MI as a force for integration because in my bones, I feel it is. In my heart, I feel it that way. And I think you'll therefore appreciate why I've made such an effort in, in education and healthcare and sport to get MI out there. Because, you know, Alan, there was a, a, a psychologist in an elite soccer club here in the UK who I mentor. And he said to me the other day, um, I asked him why he was interested in chatting about this. And he said, I'm searching for a language that I can share with other coaches in this club that allows us to speak about what it is to be helpful. And he felt that MI gave him elements of that language, not the whole thing, but there were, there were words there that could provide a generic platform 
And maybe that's a theme of Joel Alazas, <clears throat> something we can develop in this conversation, not of a cocktail, but of, if you like, a, a foundational platform upon which, when it is a shared language, upon which conversations of a more specialized nature might take place. And I think the, the four of us are aware, I'm not, uh, but many listening won't be, that Bill Miller and Terry Moyes have just produced a book mm. on, this, on this very subject. So that is, 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 is further fuel. There you go. Alan's, Alan's showing what the book looks like. What's it called? <laughs> Effective What's... Psychotherapists. Okay. Clinical Skills That Improve Client Outcomes. So there, there you go, Bernard. Um, Alan's held it up, okay? Um, and he'll hold it up again. Sure. What a, there you go, effective psychotherapists. That's what it's called. Now, Alan, can I tell you a story? <coughs> comfort comfort as, a, as I seriously and sincerely am by your reference to am I having the potential to support integration? My frustrated rant 20 minutes ago is born of this experience, okay? This polarization of, of cognitive and dynamic. I was aware of that in the 70s. It was like a polarization of the world of thinking and the world of feeling. I'm beginning to wonder, I, I think that might be it, when we know that feelings and things interact with each other. So, and I knew that back then, and I was sitting on the lawn of a psychiatric hospital in Northeast Scotland, okay? I can remember exactly when it was, it was 1979. And someone produced a paper or a book on something called cognitive behavior therapy. No, sorry, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, or it was the journal of cognitive and behavioral psychotherapy. And I remember guffawing then and saying, Hang on, but that's everything. It's cognitive, it's behavioral, it's psychotherapy. That's wonderful. This is going to be, this is going to be, and this was in 78, this is going to be an opportunity to bring everything together. And someone, I can't remember who it was, cynically said, don't you believe it? The cognitive behavior therapists are going to run with us for decades. Okay. Now it's 40 plus years later, and that is exactly what's happened. Okay, and I recognize inside myself the personal gains that have come my way having MI on my forehead. And I hope I've been kind of reasonably humble about it and not reinforced the silo. But I do notice other people in other therapies running with stuff because of the professional benefit to the individuals concerned, directing the research accordingly trying to prove that one therapy is better than another to the detriment of the recipients. Mm. My, my point is this, and then I'll, I'll stop. If that potential for integration was obvious in the middle 70s, and it was there in Bergen and Garfield's wonderful book, 
about what effective therapy and helping is. And that book was in its second edition, probably by 1978. The first edition is probably 71 or 69. Okay. They made this case very clearly. So what are we making the case for now? It's exactly the same. So, you know, you say we've come a long way, but it's 40 years later and we're in the same quagmire, for God's sake. Okay. Chris, I see you down there smiling. At least on my screen just, down there. What I just like Steve's about? rants, but it, whatever we can do to have more of Steve's rants, that's my favorite part of any day. Oh, I'm yeah, just joking, yeah, guys, but I do feel passionate about this, actually. I'm, getting a, I'm creating a Steve Rolmick mashup of all his rants. No, that's no, going to no. go on YouTube. No, but but Chris, what are you thinking about? Yeah, Chris, what do you reckon, man? Come on. I, I suppose, uh, you know, what I started with earlier is wh wherever we are is influenced by where we came from, right? So I, like a lot of people, started uh, my career doing paraprofessional work, doing crisis intervention, suicide intervention work. And it was very uh, Rogerian, active listening, you know, be non-directive because you're in the middle of somebody else's crisis and you've got no business figuring out what to do other than help them get through this moment. Some years later, my first therapy that I learned was a client-centered behavior therapy and used a model stress inoculation training. Uh, it was very behaviorally focused in content, but it was very client-centered, person-centered, interactive in that it was up to the client to figure out what, you know, what their stressor was for them, what was causing it and what, you know, they thought was a good path to go forward. So in my heart, I've never really understood the silos and the, the, the big debates in the psychotherapy field about these. And, uh, you know, the old, if all you have is a hammer thing. And I feel that some of what's happened is an, uh, people who are proponents of uh, an intact system sit down and debate with each other. Uh, and it's interesting, and I think it's uh, often intellectually stimulating. Um, but like in this, this room, I just had this room renovated. I never, it never crossed my mind to go out and look for someone to work on this room who used a particular type of saw and only that type of saw and wouldn't use any other saw to cut wood in this room. You know, what I wanted was a, a person that seemed like they were going to show up. They cared about me. They cared about what my vision for the room was and they would use the tools in the moment that needed to get it done. And I know it's an Im, you know, imperfect metaphor, but it, it feels like the, the way you started this, Steve, was a plea um, for people to us to figure out who can be helpful to them, who can be supportive, who could help this person's partner. Um, and that I, as much as possible, I want to keep that mindset of it. Um, I, you know, I think that I won't go so far as to say there is no such thing as different treatments or psychotherapy, but all of them are clusters of interventions and clusters of components. And if we did a Venn diagram, some of them, you know, probably the most important elements overlap. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion over the years about common factors, et cetera. And those, unfortunately, I think for me have 
been too specified in some ways, but in almost all cases, if we're talking a one-on-one interaction, it's two people sitting down, one intending to help the other, having a somewhat focused conversation. Uh, in some approaches, maybe do, doing some things, doing some homework, doing some exercises, or in other approaches, doing things in the moment between people to kind of shake it up and loosen it up, gestalt, empty chair technique, whatever it might be. Um, but I, I suspect that there is not nearly as much difference between all of these models and therapies and treatments as has been kind of claimed by the people who have been their proponents. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, we can get, I, I think it would actually be interesting to get into, from my point of view, some of the history of in psychotherapy, how this came to, how it came to be this way. Um, that the, there's this idea that there's all these different approaches, but I just, I'm not really sure that, that the evidence supports that. I think that, you know, we have much more shared uh, interventions, much more shared outlook on what we're doing with people and that the, the, the differences are kind of exaggerated. I'll just put that out there. I have other background stuff on that, but figure get some debate going. You could, <laughs> but I'll I'll hold my uh, hold my thoughts for the moment. Well, I'm, I was just thinking, you know, listening to listening to you, to Chris, you and Alan kind of talk about, you know, coming into the field, and and we're we're all basically the same age. I'm. I'm going to be, I don't know, how, how old am I going to be this year, Chris? 59, 58. How old are you, Chris? <laughs> You're not saying, okay. Um, Younger than so you, that's all I know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Um, we all came into the field about the same time. And, I, you know, and, you know, I was fortunate that my dad was a psychologist and he was a humanistic oriented psychologist. And I guess just saying that, is moving towards the silo. And I remember I told him I was going to graduate school in psychology. And he said, that's great. He said, I'm going to give you two books. He gave me client-centered therapy by Carl Rogers and man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. And he said, you probably ought to read these before they get to you. (laughs) And um, then I came in working through the field of addictions back in the late eighties and addiction treatment was fairly integrated, if you will. You know, it wasn't just one thing. It was family therapy. It was um, addiction-oriented therapy. It was CBT. It was a lot of other nonsense that they did at the same time. So I I don't ever think I had a time like when Alan had, when he felt like, you know, he was a purist. I've never been a, I don't think I've ever been a purist at anything in my life. Um, But I've never been a purist as a psychologist. I've always read and thought outside of what I've been practiced. But I agree with you. There was something about, Alan, there was something about motivational interviewing that was a crystallizing thing for me because it wasn't something totally new, but it was something a little bit different. It was like, you know, a, a, a second cousin that I'd never met before. And so I've, I've never had an issue with 
stepping outside of a particular field of thought or a theory and felt like I was breaking a rule. In fact, it's more than how do I, how do I go about learning something competently enough that I feel like I can integrate it with something else I know. Yeah. As opposed to what Gordon Alport and in one of his books years ago talked about eclecticism is basically a little bit of this and a little bit of that, just having gimmicks to put in. So, so that, I guess that's where, that's where this conversation has brought me thinking for sure. And I, I, I tend to think I agree somewhat with what Chris was saying in that they're, as human beings, we're more similar than different. And I would wonder, you know, if you look at psychotherapies and you look at, try to look for commonalities and common mechanisms of action, if you'd find the same nuggets of gold in each one, they just are facilitated differently. So I, I want to, I want to introduce a little tension here as, as I'm wont to do um, if I can. And, and, uh, because I think the, you mentioned that distinction between eclecticism and, and integration, Joel, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, for me, that, that difference is important. And I'm actually hearing a lot more, I think a disciplined integration of different aspects from different approaches, uh, within a common framework is a different thing than sort of taking this from here and that from there. I think MI is an integrationist, an integrative therapy or in model precisely because so much effort has gone into thinking about and specifying, you know, what is, you know, what are we doing? What is the client-centered or person-centered aspect? And what are the more... Uh, one might say behavioral aspects and where do they, you know, when do you use what, when are you doing what you're doing different things at different times in the conversation or different points in your work with, with the client, depending upon where they are in their readiness for change, uh, uh, for example. Um, and I think it's, it's an important, it's, it, for me, this is important because I think it's also possible to overestimate the similarities between therapies. And I'll just talk briefly about one, uh, which is at the extreme end, which uh, one, of, one of the gifts that the, probably the, one of the great gifts MI gave me in my career was the opportunity to work with specialists in different therapies and different approaches who wanted to integrate MI into what they were already doing. And they brought me in to work with them to do that. And the therapy I'm thinking about is exposure and ritual prevention for obsessive compulsive disorder, which is, a, is as much of a classic behavior therapy as is possible to imagine, developed by Edna Foa, who herself, and I, I, I saw some references in the chat to therapies and person, the personality of the therapist, and the, EXRP, expresses the personality of Edna Foe as purely as possible. It is an extremely directive, expert-driven therapy of telling the client what's causing the 
problem that they have, the obsessions and compulsions, obtaining their agreement to do the procedures of the therapy and to do them in a really strict, focused way over the course of a relatively brief period, um, twice a week, it could be twice a week for seven weeks or something like that. Um, and the therapist's job is to ensure that the client does the activities of the therapy correctly. And the, and the, the, the commitment of the, of the model is that it is the exposure, exposing oneself to triggers of obsessive thoughts and resisting the urge to ritualize, to, to alleviate the anxiety that results in the treatment outcome, the effect of the treatment. Uh, and if you watched, if you, if you ever had the opportunity to watch tapes of recording, you know, video of EXRP therapists doing EXRP therapy, it's hard to imagine a, ma a therapy that's m further away from the person-centered, client-centered, or MI-consistent model. Um, and when I worked with uh, a, a psychiatrist who had studied with and worked with FOA uh, to integrate MI into this therapy, the biggest challenge was or one of the big concerns was don't let this MI stuff dilute the power of the behavior therapy. That if you begin, for example, exploring with the person their ambivalence or trying to help them resolve their ambivalence about doing an exposure, yeah. as opposed to simply telling them, this is what you need to do and do it now, and I know it's scary and I know you don't want to do it, but do it because if you do it, you'll, you, we talked about why it's important to do it and to do it in this way, that you will actually get worse outcomes. So I think, I think there are differences between therapies and I think there are different assumptions that are made by different therapies about the nature of human beings and the nature of change and what produces change and what causes the problems that require change that are important to think about together and to, to try to find the underlying, the places where, they, where, where there are underlining connect, connections. But I think it's important not to dismiss the differences wow. because if you just, wow, oh, stop there. That just so, that's so interesting. Steve, do you want to you want to catch Terry up on where we're at in the conversation? Yeah. Sorry, I'm late. I just got the message this just now. Read my email that we were starting early. I'm so it's sorry. Fine, Terry. No, no worries, Terry. No I'll, worries. At I'll all. bring you. I'll bring you in in a moment and and update you. Um, I'm trying to hold on to what Alan has said because mm. the idea of a cocktail blending is is clearly not. It, it, it's going to it, it's going to undermine the legitimate differences between um, different forms of helpfulness. And Alan also talked about maybe there is a foundation that does unite all forms of therapy, and it's that foundation we're going to turn to Terry with in a moment. Okay, upon which 
more specialist activity might take place. And it will be, yeah. I, Alan, um, the father of behavior therapy was a relative of mine. And I've sometimes thought that Joseph Wolpe was a relative. And I've sometimes thought that I've spent my whole career reacting against ba 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 ba. But I have more personal reasons why I, why I became interested in MI, and I, I might at some point in this webinar articulate that because I recently went into very intensive, brief, short-term psychodynamic therapy. And I had someone pointing their finger at me and saying, you have repressed anger all your life. What are you feeling? And I'd say, I'm feeling a bit numb. You see? You're feeling angry and you're not expressing your anger. Now, this is so counter to everything that I've ever believed in. It's been one of the most useful personal experiences. And I've suddenly seen my whole journey of MI as being um, a soft, easy, empathic journey away from some real issues that I've never tackled. So that's about as deep as I'm going to go for now. But I'm hoping it'll prompt Alan people like Alan and Chris to kind of go, oh, hell, <laughs> right. Okay, so there's, you know, um, there's some legitimacy to exploring emotion, okay, which is, is, is what we could well speak to later. But look, people, you know, we've got four white men here and I've been shuddering a bit because, you know, it wasn't intentional. We wanted Terry to be up here at the beginning. I've invited... Uh, Kathy Goomis to come on as well. Uh, I haven't checked whether she wants to, but we, we will bring Kathy in. Yeah. But Terry, yeah. listen, Terry, listen, let me just put it this way. Okay. We've, we've, we've shown the cover of your book. <laughs> it, it is incredible to have you with us, Terry. Really, it Thank is. Thank you. And what about this, Terry? I told the story about how in 1978 it was quite apparent to a group of us psychologists that therapy integration was there for the taking. 78, we were all immersed in Bergen and Garfield. And someone cynically said, I bet you that's not going to happen because CBT is now going to be a wave that's going to wash itself over, you know, the psychological treatment field. And looking back, they were quite right. I thought they were grumpy and misguided. But looking back, they were quite right. Could I put this... Put it to you this way, Terry. There was this case for integration in the 70s, possibly even the 60s. And you've just written a book with Bill that speaks to integration. What, what, what's changed and, and what's in the book that you feel is a useful contribution to this discussion? How's that? Lovely, thank you. I, I am just sitting here and just listening to the little tiny snippet I've gotten so far. My mind is just brimming with thoughts, which reminds me how fun it is to talk about psychotherapy to people who are actually interested in that topic. Uh, it's just a joy to hear all these ideas. The, the, the direct answer to your question, Steve, for, let me take a digression first, which is why I think psychotherapy integration didn't really work or really take off, which, it, which I think is because we don't know what the active ingredients of treatment 
are. So we can't, when we start integrating treatments, we begin squabbling in the absence of data because we don't know, okay, well, what are the elements of EXRP that really work? What are the elements of motivational interviewing that really work? And if we knew the answer to that, we would be in a much better position to, to integrate them because we say, okay, we'll take the active element from this one, or we'll take the active element from that one. But we're just squabbling about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin because we, we don't have any data to inform us. So I think that's why psychotherapy integration, it doesn't really work as well as it could, could do. It's a, such a great idea. It's really where we need to go as a field, but it requires a kind of research and a kind of investigating that we haven't been very good at. And when we have done those kinds of studies, what we find is the things that we think are the active ingredients, actually there's not much support for that. So if you read studies about you know, mechanisms of action in CBT, it's like, well, there's not really strong evidence for the things that are supposed to work in CBT. I mean, there's a great study by um, Morgenstern is one, was one of the authors. And of course, the other one is eluding me right now because I'm getting old. And in which they investigated two types of therapy, uh, CBT and uh, interpersonal skills. And what they found is that acquiring skills in either of those areas and domains improve your outcomes. But the acquisition of those skills wasn't related to the treatment you got. So if you got interpersonal therapy and you acquired better social skills or drink refusal skills that you would learn in cognitive therapy, you got better. And if you were in CBT and you learned any of the skills of those two therapies, you got better. But being in the therapy didn't indicate whether you were going to get those skills or not. And it really and there are lots of studies like that. There are some really good um, EXRP studies showing that actually acquiring, getting the therapist-delivered exposure, and again, this is therapist-delivered, doesn't necessarily predict better outcomes. So there really is a much uh, more complicated interaction between the person interacting with the therapist and the environment to get the things they really need you know, and to get the, the juicy part out of it, which reminds me so much, Steve, of what you were talking about when you described your recent experience with having, you know, being, uh, had a finger shaking at you. So I'm really interested um, lately in the work of a man named Robert Hatcher, who's writing about a concept called uh, responsiveness and how it, it is the therapist's ability to actually assess and deliver in real time different elements of treatments that are indicated for that person. And that sort of meta skill of knowing and delivering what the person needs is actually what you know, separates the sheep from the goats when it comes to therapists. So I'm very interested in that concept lately. Chris is laughing at me for calling, saying that she, is that a <laughs> cultural thing that people aren't going to understand in, the, in other uh, cultures? Maybe I just like the wheat from the chaff, you know, the good from the not good, all that. So mm -hmm. all that I'm circling around to answer uh, the question about what is that, what is it that are in our book that um, might be helpful in this context. And I think um, our book focuses on, you know, we both Bill and I are, 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 uh, aware that there are technical elements or believe that there are technical elements of treatment that work like exposure and response prevention and learning social skills and so on. And we also want uh, some equal attention to the therapist skills and the context in which those technical elements are delivered. And motivational interviewing is, you know, such a great example of that 
and I call, I call motivational interviewing the royal marriage because it really was the first therapy that equally privileged relational and technical elements. And there are a whole bunch of things that happened because of that, that I think were really life changing and brought life to uh, the area of psychotherapy research. But the point of our book is just to, to focus a little bit on that interpersonal skills balance and bring some attention to it and approach it in a rigorous way, you know, where people are attaching data to those phenomenon in a way that helps us move the ball down the field to um, improve psychotherapy outcomes. Whew, that was a lot. You may, have, you may have four white guys on the panelists, but you got one talkie woman. So there we go. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's not, it's not by, uh, it's just by default. Everybody that we asked was busy. So they ended up with four blokes from you. <laughs> not, not far from the truth. No, no, not far from the truth at all. Um, people are on holiday. They got to teach classes. They have to do other things. Chris, what are, what are you thinking? And then we'll bring Kathy in the conversation. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw, I saw Kathy pop up. Um, uh, so in some ways it could, it's easy to focus on the differences even in the conversation when I think that there is, again, more overlap in what people are saying than actual differences. Um, and to go back to the Venn diagram idea again, the overlapping pieces, Alan's saying some of the, some of the parts that don't have overlap are very important. And some of those are not just, as I understand it, not just the kind of momentary techniques, but the fundamental understanding of what is the purpose of sitting down and talking with someone or trying to help someone and what, what vision of humanity do you bring to the interaction? And that's really important. And I agree with that. Terry uh, talking about uh, what are the processes as well as what is the context in which, uh, you know, interactions happen, but what are the processes that, both are specified, are, are theorized, or hypothesized to work versus what, when we do get very often imperfect data, what do those data suggest are important? And I think that's also essential. And that's some of the stuff that's in the overlap of different approaches that hasn't been given enough attention to. Um, so, so for me to back up just a little bit uh, in the psychotherapy research world, I think there was a big reactance to a guy named Hans Ising back in the 1950s, posing the basic question, does psychotherapy work? And I'm not sure the field has gotten over the insult that that apparently, you know, sparked in, in so many people, the, you know, the therapists who say, of course, psychotherapy works. And, but it took a, it took a couple decades for that to unfold. And it, it started with the, um, this idea of a uniformity myth uh, that Don Kiesler introduced that, that Ising's question said, you know, implied that all patients are alike and all therapists alike and all therapies are alike. And so it was just not a good question. And he kind of launched us into, well, what works with whom? Um, and then a guy named Gordon Paul, this is a very American psychotherapy stuff and, and British also, but, you know, expanded that to what treatment by whom is effective in this specific individual with that specific problem under what set of circumstances and really complicated, right? So this developed what some people referred to as the, the grid model of psychotherapy research, where you have all these boxes. 
And so we've gone from a general question to psychotherapy work, does, does this particular therapy done by that particular person in this setting with that amount of time and these techniques work? And while that is, um, I think, realistic that, that there are different answers, it's taken us completely away from the question of, is what we're doing working? And at least in my view, um, has, has been responsible for the kind of unfolding downward spiral failure of psychotherapy research to do its basic function, which is to say what's helpful to people. Um, because by the time you're in all these boxes in the grid, you, you've lost the searching for some sort of general answers. And I think that process research um, for, in psychotherapy research, I know we're into the technical stuff, Joel, but it, it's been differentiated oh. from it. And yet one of the myths that Kiesler uh, put forward in the 70s was that process research and outcome research are not different fields, that all outcome research, all outcomes involve many outcomes along the way throughout therapy and processes themselves are, produce many outcomes. And so this separation into this field and then the, the subsequent development of the, the randomized clinical trial as the, not just the gold standard, but really in many ways, the only acceptable um, scientific model or accepted scientific model has just kind of moved us away from some of the most important things that I think some of the research on MI has brought back. You know, Terry's work, others work to say, what's, what's actually going on between people and what seems to be useful, um, I think is, are the key questions. And I think the, the next place I really want to see it go over the coming decades is into from the client's perspective, because it's so hard to, to figure out whose perspective, um, you know, to look at. And they often, depending on if you look at a, a, a provider's perspective versus an observer's versus a client's perspective, you have to get really different views of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and in the end, to kind of come back to Steve's question, what I'm hoping for is we find things that people find helpful for them, not things that we think are good, that, that science proves should work on average with a number of people with a particular kind of problem, but that we do find not just what do we do that can be uh, helpful and we can kind of notice that in the moment, but the clients actually perceive as helpful, want to grab it, want to take it with them and want to use those those skills and those insights and those kind of processes for the rest of their lives, where, which is to me where it counts, not what happens with us, but what everything that happens after. I, I think you landed on something really important there, Chris, and I'm not going to jump into it because I'm really eager to hear what Kathy has to say about this conversation and her thoughts in this whole area as well. Hi, I didn't expect to be on here, but hey. <laughs> what happens when you come to our webinar? Yeah, um, uh, it's lovely. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm just sort of listening um, with admiration and, and bewilderment and all sorts of emotions are, are sort of flooding for me around this because my, um, you know, I, I sort of go back to the sort of opening where, you know, you, you and Steve, Joel, you know, promised to avoid a lot of psychologists speak 
And, um, you know, I hear a lot of research and a lot of psychological theories and a lot of, you know, research, and I respect that immensely. However, my experience and the stories that sort of are percolating in my head as I listen to this, how do we be helpful? You know, where do we become helpful? And, you know, Steve's lovely question about, you know, what about the recipients? So my experience comes very much from that sort of frontline practice. And then in, uh, throughout my career, uh, you know, I'm struggling and searching for ways of trying to be a better helper. Uh, I'm a nurse by background. I trained in, in some therapies. You know, I refined my skills. I spent a lot of time really uh, reflecting on what I was doing and how I was doing it and what was helpful. And I, when I met MI, it just sort of felt uh, such a wonderful um, a, a, a wonderful fit, I suppose, just to use that word, for me. Um, and I took what I learned and I integrated it into what I did with lots of other things. And then my uh, career took uh, different directions. And I went into the world of um, organizational change and implementation science and quality assurance and, and management and all of those other, you know, really, complex, difficult, challenging environments. And my little rant in the chat that brought me on here for my sins was that it, it, it touched that, that button for me of, you know, how, how, do you, how do we help those practitioners who are helping others be better helpers? And, you know, that's really, to me, at the heart of it all. And involving, you know, Chris, you've just mentioned, um, you know, service users, the users of our services, you know, being involved in this. And, you know, that has been something I've, um, I, I'm, I'm proud to say that in within the part of the world that I live in Northern Ireland, uh, in mental health services in particular, we have, uh, you know, been getting much better at. And so for 20 odd years, it's been, you know, a, a process of having um, the, the expertise of the service user uh, inform what we do and how we do it and how we design services. And we're a long way away from, you know, doing that well <laughs> or to the best of our abilities. But the insights that I'm picking up along the way is that, you know, the, the political arena in which we all operate plays a significant part in what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do, you know, in our uh, services that we all work in. And, you know, what's funded, that's what's king or queen. And therefore, you know, it's almost this transactional mechanistic sort of culture that we are creating as a result of that. And therefore the person at the center of all of this that evidence-based practice that we talk about and the research, how, how the research proves or disproves something can have a massive impact on what is done at frontline level. And it can be for the good or the not so good. And that's a really, an important tension because it's at the expense of practice-based evidence most in my experience. So that's where I suppose when I'm looking at blending and integration, I now, you know, help other people learn MI 
and, and I'm sort of hopefully uh, guiding their practices and when they get curious about themselves it's just, it's really that it's that trust it's that sense of connection it's keeping it simple it's it's um, creating a, a dialogue with someone in a way that's helpful uh, and is devoid of arrogance and and expertise it's about meaning and connection so I don't know I've gone I've, I've ranted you brought me on there you go <laughs> that's where I'm sitting at the moment so I'll leave uh, that's, that's not a rant, Kathy. That was lovely. Thank you. Well, it is a rant. Steve, what were you going to say? Why can't you? Why can't you be called a ranter? Because I have. So you know, <laughs> it's the inflection in the voice that makes it a rant. She has that lovely Irish accent that just she's just telling the story. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to have another look at your book, Terry, with a very open spirit, and I have looked at it, but I wondered what would happen if I look at your book and thought. What, what is helpfulness? Because I think that is some, a question that addresses, you know, Chris Wagner and my shared concern of, and Kathy's as well about the user. What, what is helpfulness? And Bill and I are, are, Bill Miller and I are busy trying to put together what the fourth edition of the MI book might look like. And I'm interested to know to what extent we answer that question in that book, as opposed to create, creating more specialist variants of MI. Um, and a couple of stories kind of washed over me while Kathy was talking, and I wonder if I could briefly tell you them, because I think they address this, they point to the fact that we might be very close to clarifying what helpfulness is. Um, one is the sheer arrogance of professionals like myself, who in the early days of MI, when people used to say to us in training, oh, I do that every day, our reaction was, oh, no, you don't. Um, this is something more special. Let me try and tell you, right? Now, looking back over 30 years, thank God I can see what they're getting at, because a lot of MI happens naturally. Okay. And that strikes me as very powerful, and it has for the last four or five years, I've been wondering, okay, so what happens naturally? The other story is, comes from elite sport, where I'll try and camouflage the source of this, but someone, a player gets bought for well over 50 million pounds. Okay, settles into this new club and doesn't perform. And the psychologist to my mentor says to me, I got approached by the coach saying, can you do something with this guy? Because he's cost us 75 million pounds and he's not performing. So the psychologist says, yes, I'll, sure. So he says, look, I'll refer him to you. Next time I see the, speak to the psychologist, I say, what happened? He said, well, I haven't seen, haven't seen this guy yet, but I did say to the coach, will you have a word with him? Okay. The coach said, yeah, I'll do some goal setting with him. Okay. Now this is a foreign player coming to a new country in isolation and lockdown in a big city, socially isolated and not familiar with the language and culture. Okay. 
and the coach is going to sit down and do goal setting with him. Okay. Two weeks later, the psychologist and I are chatting again, and I said, you know, I was very intrigued because I know who the player is, and it's quite, you know, quite, it's apparently very serious stuff in my little world, this, right? He says, yeah, it's interesting what happened because the coach came to, by the way, the guy started suddenly performing brilliantly, right? The magic was happening on the field. He says to me, did you notice the magic has started happening? And I said, yeah, I noticed. It's brilliant. What did you do? The coach came to me. He said, the coach came to me and said, thank you very much for what you did with the player. He said, Steve, the problem is I haven't seen the player yet. Okay. So I said, well, what happened when the coach spoke to him? And he said, no, the coach did his goal setting. And he and I both had a twinkle in our eye. Okay. And we recognized what had happened, which was... The coach thought he was doing goal setting. The person himself experienced it very differently. He, ex he experienced somebody who cared about him, cared enough about him to sit down and say, how are you doing, man? Okay. And so I'm wondering what is in Terry's book that's beyond that? Because I'd really like to know. And I'm wondering what it is that we can add in the fourth edition of motivational interviewing that amplifies the kind of helpfulness that I think, you know, Alan and Chris and Kathy, we've all pointed to. And which, if you look at Gerard Egan's work from the seventies, I sometimes go back into that and, and, and my jaw drops for the quality of his answer to this question of what helpfulness is. And I think his, his model's called helping was something ridiculous. It's Egan, E-G-A-N. Yeah. E skilled, skilled helper. It's called the skilled, skilled helper, helper, right? And to be honest, that's where I got the word focusing from for MI, was looking at, you know, thinking about what Egan was saying about how you focus. So, like, I feel very optimistic that if we're humble enough and we all just have a good look at Bill and Terry's book and try and pinpoint, and I'm not trying to sell your book, Terry. That's the last thing on my mind. But I have looked at it and felt like it's tantalizingly close to answering this question of helpfulness. So there you go. There's a there's a note of optimism, despite my well. I'm I'm pretty impressed at how how quick time has gone. Um, and I know that Marion and other people probably have some questions. Y'all, how about we take a few questions and see what. See what, what um, and David Price has got a question. Yes. Let me. Why don't we open it up now for the last 10 minutes? I've put the link to the Guardians of the National Treasure in the chat line. If you would like, if you feel this has been helpful to you personally, why don't you make a gesture there? I promise you, it's not just charity, it's work that's got to be done. Okay, it's got to be done, the work they're doing, believe me. Um, so, trying to fit. Uh, Joel's trying to uh, <laughs> operate from. Trying to figure this out. Yeah, um, he's, he's going to try so and Steve, find would you? Um, so, we have, we have lots of questions coming up, Steve. If you can start picking a few of them. Okay, sure. Terry, I wonder how you reacted to what I said. My 
so a big burning question I have about MI in general is about the role of compassion and how important it, it is. And, you know, I, I tell this story a lot that when you and Bill were writing the new, the third edition, I begged you not to put in compassion because I didn't, I knew I could not code it. I knew I couldn't evaluate it. Right. <laughs> and I didn't want to have anything in MI that couldn't be evaluated because then, you know, then it became, then it became religion, you know, and that was my concern. It really right. worried me. And it really worried me that people would say, well, if I don't have compassion, how can I do motivational interviewing? Right. And right. can only only a person that is a good person with compassion do MI, right? Great. So for all of those reasons, I didn't, I, I was, you know, really, really nervous about having compassion in there. And then, you know, you and I, Steve, have had some long talks about this, about the, whether the person, whether a person really needs a good heart to do MI. And, um, you know, I, I recall you coming down, I remember you saying to me once we were having an, I, when I was arguing with you about this and you said, well, maybe if a person doesn't have a good heart, they shouldn't be trying to do MI. And it was really, I just stopped short. I didn't know what to say because that idea had never occurred to me that maybe, you know, some people shouldn't be trying to use motivational interviewing. Um, I mean, I know some people don't ever seem to be good at it, but it never occurred to me that somebody shouldn't try to use it. And that one of the sort of entry requirements or the things that the, the thing that would be important would be to have a good heart. And, and of course, um, I think the, I think you and Bill and, and, and I also agree, and I've seen this, that the other, it can work the other way, which is that you start using motivational interviewing and then it really changes your heart, right? Your, your heart becomes more compassionate. So, but, you know, I, I really hope you struggle with that question in your new book, um, because I, I think that's just to me, like the, oh, such an interesting question. So I don't know, I don't even know if that answered your question, but that's what I was thinking. Of. You're not sure whether compassion is as important as we're suggesting? Well, I think talking about compassion as a component of motivational interviewing, in my mind, splits it off from a large group of people who might otherwise try to use it because they say to themselves, I'm not about becoming more compassionate, I'm about becoming more effective. And, you know, surgeons <laughs> don't ask themselves whether they should have compassion for the people that they're cutting open. And, you know, is that something we really want to ask therapists to do? Because if we do that, then we're really changing the focus of their work. And I think you and Bill intentionally wanted to change that focus and were interested in doing that. And, and I, I've become a, I, I'm a laggardly agree, agreeer on that point. <laughs> um, but I, I do think it really is one that we, we don't grapple with explicitly in our thinking about MI. So Terry, what do you do with loving kindness? Well, um, so what I think is that I'm, I have the, the tough job of picking apart components of therapy and trying to measure them. So what I do with loving kindness is nothing because I can't measure it. Now, does that mean I don't think it's important? No, of course I do. The same thing with compassion, right? I think a compassionate MI therapist is a much better therapist than a non-compassionate MI therapist. But how do I evaluate that, right? That's my, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, geeky little uh, misguided interest. Well, I don't think it's misguided at all, but I'll just... <laughs> yeah. it, it's sort of striking me, Terry, listening to you, because it reminds me of um, a little story from me, I suppose, when I entered the world of 
uh, what was called, it's now implementation science, I think is the word being used, but it was called service improvement. And I, I went um, and was successful and got this job as a service improvement facilitator in Northern Ireland. And it was uh, a sort of a part of the Department of Health. And uh, we set up a wonderful program whereby we were um, offering um, a program of change for teams who wanted to improve their services. And there was no money aligned to it. And, um, you know, you had to apply and you had to sort of describe what it was you wanted to do. And I, you know, I was just inspired by the whole selection recruitment process because they posted an ad that just sang to my heart, you know, and I, I applied for it. And I went very naively into this job because I didn't have any of these service improvement skills that, um, you know, um, are needed. I hadn't been trained in them. And, um, but I, you know, and I was coming from frontline practice, to be honest. Um, yes, as a, a nursing sister in a community addiction service, but that's what I was bringing with me. And um, I, I found myself in the first couple of days um, in a workshop for called Capacity and Demand Analysis. And I was sitting there and I didn't even understand the language. And I'm thinking, this is the wrong job for me. I've made a massive mistake. This is wrong. Um, and, but I persevered and I stayed with it and I eventually mastered all of these other skills that I needed. But as we took these teams who applied to go through a year long service improvement program, they had to really, you know, uh, focus down in and it, the, the, the process, it was this process that Chris was referring to, which was so important to get the outcomes that they got. So as a team, the whole team, not just the, the, you know, the senior members of the team, but the whole team and service users, you know, it was uh, three principles that they had to do, you know, they had to sign up for. And that was to reduce weights and delays, improve communication and involve service users in their service redesign. So, that was what they were starting off with. And as we started to um, get together the idea, so I was working with a number of different project teams. They had to put this idea together. They then had to really think about, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to know if what change we're making actually results in an improvement? And this is where I see the beautiful synergy between um, process and outcome, because as they grappled with that, um, uh, together from their different perspectives. Um, they, you know, they sort of had to think about, well, what's it going to look like? How's this, you know, all those things that we're familiar with as, as sort of behavior change um, signs, okay? But then they had to, to figure out how were they going to measure it? So <laughs> that was the tough one because it was dead easy to count days and time and units but that wasn't so easy to uh, measure actual outcomes in relation to, you know, where, where was the experience of the service user better? So how do we do that? So then that, that's where the, the, the measurement had to get a much more relational, much more human sort of all of those factors. And, you know, it just sort of strikes me is, is that, and I know, you know, uh, I've been involved in conversations and I think one of them might have been with you, Terry, around that whole sense of, you know, research and, and the difficulties of trying to design a research project and, you know, how you measure it and then how you um, 
you know, write it all up. It's, it's, it's terribly complicated. But then when it comes back to, well, what actually becomes a better helper? You know, well, an MI, we're looking to get that feedback from the service user we're with. That's who tells us whether it's helpful or not. So, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I do think that process bit and therefore compassion and all those things that are less, less able to be units of measurement are, are you know, we, we have to get much more comfortable, I think, with embracing that sense of difference and diversity, but at the heart. And, you know, and this is where I think your book in particular, I don't have a copy of it quite yet because it hasn't reached this side of the pond. Uh, but next month, I think it's going to be delivered. But, you know, I've heard you speak on it. I've heard you describe some of it. And I, I'm excited by it because it's, um, as a practitioner, I think I can read that. And as a manager, I think I can read it. And as a, a service designer, I think I can read it because these are things that we can see and we can help improve on. So that's, again, another little rant, sorry. Chris, you want to do us a favor and try to summarize some of what oh. we've talked about? I and what stood out to you? Things that have stood out to you? Um, I don't know. I mean, so many pieces. And I think that the, what I hear is most important is that we don't, I believe everyone's saying this, we don't get caught up in our own heads thinking about what we think is important. We look for evidence. We get look for other input. We think clearly about how these different pieces might fit together. And kind of going back to something Steve said earlier about when we we do training with people and they say I already do this, um, respecting that to, at least to a, a reasonable degree that's true. And then also maybe looking for the things they also do that they're not really counting when they say I do this, but that end up undermining, uh, you know, the, the spirit of it. So that was, that was not a very good summary, but the things that stood out to me. Yeah. Oh, Joel. We've yeah. Got, we've got to that time in these webinars where the real stuff starts to happen as we decide to close. So what are we doing? Why don't we do what we usually do? Put in one more pitch for the guardians. I see you've had them up there. And then we will um, keep chatting and maybe bring some more people up and just have a bit of a chat. If, Terry, if you need to go, um, just, just say adios. Um, no, and we'll I'm just carry for... on the conversation until um, we're done. Yeah, um, I put the link to the Guardians in the chat line, and I won't say anything more other than to make an appeal to your generous spirits. Um, let me tell you, the day after these webinars, um, we often dance together, myself and Ralph Bovers in Cape Town. We often go online, and he gets very excited. And so thank you very much. No more about that. There's somebody called Berna Elias, who's raised a question about... Um, the use of MI with immigrant clients in a multicultural context. And that's, that's got a freshness about it that, you know, a burner said she might be prepared to come on video and tell us about it, but that's after we finished folks. I think we okay. should, 
I think we should give the last few minutes to each of our lovely people here to make, to make a final comment. And I'm wondering whether I should pose a question to you or whether you'd just like to make a final closing comment. What do you think, Joel? Should we pose a question or should we just ask each of the people, give them 30 seconds to return to the Those, are, those are questions, Steve. I like the idea of that. Particularly the person we, who gets it first. Where are we at with integration? How's that? What do you feel about where we're at with integration? And you've got 30 seconds starting now. Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in a place of enormous promise. I think work like uh, Bill and Terry's book and other who uh, work focusing on psychotherapy relationships that matter the Norcross uh, uh, work um, points in the direction of where we need to do to for, to do achieve genuine integration. And I'll stop there because otherwise I'll talk for twenty minutes and not thirty seconds. Chris, Kathy. Oh, Chris, go ahead. No, that's okay, Kathy. Mm, okay, um, I just say from an integration and practice point of view, I think we have a long way to go um, just for people to integrate it into their practice. Um, I think there's lots more around um, that, again, that whole sense of um, organizational uh, implementation that needs to support this practice. And if we were to audit, a, 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 you know, do an audit of people who are supposed to be practicing MI and did an audit of the, the clinical case notes just to see, okay, well, what was done? I think we have a long way to go if we were trying to recognize is MI happening, you know, from that type of, um, type of, of uh, what do you call it? Um, type of way that people do, they do an audit to see about fidelity or people, you know, practicing well. So they'll audit case notes. I don't see it there. And I think there's a long way to go. So that might be something for your book as well, um, Steve, is, is how, you know, how do the systems actually um, ascertain or, or confirm or whatever, you know, assure themselves that um, MI is being practiced because if an audit of clinical case notes was done, would it be evident? What that look like? The, the, yes. steers to the, the steers to the practice-based evidence that Kathy referred to earlier, I think we'd be even further along if we had more full-time counselors, therapists, helpers having the conversation and fewer therapy developers, academics, trainers, teachers. The pe I mean, you may not necessarily get better. I know Bill has made that point as a therapist over the course of your career but I would put a little bit more money in the idea that if we talk to people who do this all day, every day for 10, 15, 20 years, we'd learn more about integration um, than, than we currently know. Yeah. And, and, and I think maybe even, I think it was Terry in your book where I saw this about in these research studies where these different therapies are being known in some of the follow-up 
interviews uh, asking the participants about their therapist, they end up talking about the research assistant. I think that was in your book, that that's who they really identified as their main helper was the person who called them on the phone. I don't know where, wow. where that goes, but it's a handoff to Terry. So I'm going to follow up on both of those, uh, but particularly what Kathy said, which is that we're, uh, and, and Alan, right, which is that we do have a long way to go. And I see that happening because I think we're beginning to identify elements of treatment that are effective. And once we do that, people will want us to be accountable for it in a way that we really haven't been before. So therapists and behavioral health really hasn't been accountable for their outcomes because we haven't been able to measure it very well, but that's going to be changing. And so what I want to do is say the thing that will make that happen, which I see as a good thing, and the way that will that will make that happen is if we is if we stop pretending we have a magic door. And the magic door is right, you therapy is a special thing and it can't happen and it can't work if you watch it. So therefore, I as a therapist am off the hook for allowing people to watch what I do and for being accountable for what I do, because I, I have to close the magic door in order for the magic to happen. And I really want us to consider that we're not going to make any progress in psychotherapy integration or psychotherapy effectiveness until we get rid of that myth and we start watching what we do with each other in a way that other professions do quite naturally and quite normally, in, in, in which we have a taboo in our field of psychotherapy. So I, I just wanna put a plug in for getting rid of the magic door as a way of facilitating okay. integration. I have a couple of broad thoughts. One of them is that I think, I think the future is more promising because I don't think people are ensconced in their theoretical camps as much as they used to be. I don't hear the the arguments that Alan was talking about. And, and the, um, I hear people, you know, flirting with different therapies, you know, but I think people are more open to looking across their theoretical lines and bringing in other ideas. And I think the other thing that as long as, if we, as long as we're teaching people how to think and not so much what to do, that'll bode well for the future of integration. If people are actually thinking about what they're doing, it, why they're doing it, and what the outcome is that, that they're intending to get, I think that'll bode a lot better than I, I have a workbook or I've been trained in one thing and every client gets the same approach. But I, I do think it's imperative that we look at the client experiences because different clients are gonna experience two different therapists very differently doing the same thing. And so what are those differences that are happening for that one person? Could be a bit of a rabbit hole to go down, but that's certainly worth it. Steve. Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard one, um, opening that magic door. When my uh, recent um, intensive brief psychoanalytic therapist sent me a form saying she wanted to use a recording for teaching purposes. I said, no, I was scared. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It is. All right. Look, we, we've reached that, that point where um, we're going to get very informal. The webinar is over in that sense. Um, Hey, yeah. Steve, can I jump in for a second? 
Yeah. Yeah. Let me just let me just say that I just donated to the Guardians of the National Treasure and the conversion rate is a nickel to a dollar for US dollars, just in case those of you who are planning on making a donation would like to know that. And there's a currency converter on the site that does that for you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. That's brilliant. Absolutely. A little bit goes a long way. All right, folks. Well, I wonder if somebody I'll, you'd like to bring up, Steve. I was banging well, on about having how about the person that you mentioned right off. And then I maybe wonder, if Paul's still here, we'll get him to come up. Say that again, Joe. The the woman who you had mentioned who was doing motivational Burn. interviewing and with yes. immigrants. Yes. Berna. Well what what was her name again? Berna. B doing M I with what? Immigrant population. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, got it. And I want to apologize to David Price while uh, Joel tries to find Berna. Because the, the words you use, pluralism and integration, they're tough for me, David. I don't really know what pluralism means. And I worry about getting plunging into um, a rather refined academic discussion here. But if you'd like to come on, David, please raise your hand. Berner, you need to put your mic on. Hello, Berner. Tell us who you are and where you are. And if you have a question, then tell us. Or, But it's lovely to meet you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very honored to be uh, on, uh, on this webinar with you. Uh, so my first, excuse my English, it's not my first language. So uh, uh, I live in Canada, Montreal, and uh, I'm a new immigrant. And I work with parents uh, of children who have a diagnosis of autism or uh, uh, intellectual uh, disabilities. Uh, so um, I'm planning on working with MI and linking it or blending it <laughs> with an, an approach that, I don't know if you, you heard about the transcultural uh, psych uh, psychiatry, so something like that. But I will be, I was interested to know your opinion about linking motivational interviewing with uh, an approach that is open to culture. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. I was here. <clears throat> you are being very clear, Bernard. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share some observations with you, but perhaps somebody else on the panel would like to. Um, speak now or okay but um there's a been a discussion in the mi field about does it cross cultures and there have been some studies not that many but there have been some studies and there is the sense of optimism around that the use of mi can cross cultures I, I have had personal worries about this for many years of working in Africa. And so I never used to use the word motivational interviewing because I felt it was kind of arrogant almost. But actually looking back, I, was, I think I was mistaken because 
uh, I met and worked with a group of people in South Africa. In fact, Kathy was with me just a year ago in Cape Town. Where it was frankly extraordinary how readily they saw the value of motivational interviewing. And for the first time, it, it became clear to me what it was that they found useful and that seemed to cross cultures, which I could speak to. Um, but I wonder what makes sense to you. What have you noticed that might be helpful in motivational interviewing? And I guess that's a question to you, but I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, I, um, I don't know. I, I'm still in the beginning of my, I, my thinking, brainstorming. And uh, yeah, I practice motivational interviewing. I'm, I'm very, uh, <laughs> I'm a beginner. Uh, I practice it in uh, Kuwait. Uh, so, and in a different, not in a Western uh, uh, society, but, uh, and it, yeah, I know it's the techniques, the strategies works well, but I was thinking about um, how it would work when we have different, how can I put it? Okay. <laughs> It's really when, when we work in a, um, in a group as well, like because when we talk about children um, with diagnosis, so we have a multidisciplinary team who works with them. So, and maybe each, each team member comes from a different background. Uh, and sometimes we, we go into the house of, uh, uh, the home of the child and we enter their space. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, I can see the, the challenges there. And what, what's increasingly striking me, and I think this was the experience I had with Kathy in Cape Town, was that there can be a, a power dynamic where the provider knows the solutions and it renders the recipient passive. And what's attractive about MI is the, is the adjustment that, and then with that attitude and with the set of values that drive it, you see a person first, patient second, which is, what Mats Hogmark, who's made a number of comments in this webinar is saying, surgeons should be taught about compassion. I think what he's saying is surgeons should see the recipients of their efforts as human beings first and a patient with this or that problem second. And with, with those lenses on, so to speak, if it's a person first, it allows for the kind of connection and helpfulness that MI thrives on. And that's what I think Kathy and I witnessed in Cape Town, along with one other thing, which I'm very pleased that we've come up with this in MI, which is that 
when you when you establish that balance, you don't sort out the other person's problem using the writing reflex. That that can have its limits. That's what struck them in 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 across diverse cultures we were working with in Cape Town. That that to step in and solve problems a bit like the football coach I referred to, actually what was helpful was him leveling off with this player and, and treating him as a person first. And so maybe that's the fundamental attitude from which all else follows in some kind of integrated foundation um, that we're trying to seek uh, because it, establishes what Kathy talked about, a foundation of trust. And I think that's what appeals to people in MI. It's the, the, the leveling off with them and not solving every problem for them. And then the question of, of okay, I, it doesn't mean I don't have expertise. I'm a guide. I can present you options, but um, I champion and empower you I champion your choice and your wisdom in knowing what the next best step is. Now, if what, if what I've said makes sense, then the football coach can learn that as well as somebody in your multidisciplinary team, as well as um, anyone. I don't know whether that makes any sense. Yes, thank you. You know, Steve, it, what, what strikes me as I listen to you, as, as is so often the case for me, is that, that the, the underlying stance, you know, even more, you know, uh, than talking about empathy and, or, or, or prizing, which both of which are so important, um, is an attitude of humility. And I think it's that I, I've become more and more convinced as I've trained different practitioners in different settings and different interventions um, and done them myself, is that that's the underlying, in some ways, that's the this sort of common thread of people who can learn MI and do it well, or people who can be helpful in other ways and 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 do it well, is that stance of of really being first aware of what we don't know and uh, of, of what, uh, of, of that, that we're not uh, the expert on not only the, the, the life of the person we're talking with, but, uh, but, but even in some ways on ourselves, on our, <laughs> and, and that willingness to not know and, and that embrace of, of a stance of wanting to learn. And you've taken this actually a step further, Alan, because I vividly remember in one of these webinars, you talking about looking up in an admiring way at someone. So, I mean, I'm talking about a leveling off, but actually yeah. I found it very powerful when, when you pointed out in relation to affirmation, it was the webinar on affirmation. <laughs> found it incredibly powerful your reference to actually you're looking up in admiration of this person um i just um had um i was just up in alice springs up in the middle of australia the northern territory 
and um, doing training, motivational interviewing training with um, remote uh, workers who are working in the Aboriginal communities that are anywhere from 500 kilometers from Alice Springs. So these are very small 250, 300, maybe 500 people communities where the workers go and live. And um, they came down for the training and had a very similar experience um, that, you and, that you talked about that you and Kathy had, that there was some non-specific things that were happening in the training that was connecting up with what folks are already doing and then gave them a language to talk some of what they were almost intuiting and gave them some more direction to go with the conversation. But nobody said this isn't gonna be applicable amongst the Aboriginal population that we work with, where in some of the communities, English is a second language, right? So I would love to see somebody doing motivational interviewing in the local dialect with somebody and getting that translated to see what that looked like. But, but what it is, is that it, it, it's meeting people where they're at and not coming in with all the solutions. And that's been my experience working and having the opportunity to train people from all different walks of life is that's what people tend to resonate with. That even as a trainer, that I'm not coming in with the solutions. I just got some ideas that I want to share. And, and that's kind of the way I interact with my clients too. Um, I don't do motivational interviewing with every client I see. In fact, I rarely do full-on motivational interviewing. But do I listen out for language? And am I aware of things like ambivalence and discrepancy? Yeah, definitely. And because I asked somebody, you know, how would this improve your health? That doesn't mean I'm doing MI. It just means that's an ingredient that can be really helpful. And I, I go back to kind of what I said earlier. You know, the first step is to learn as best as you can how to do motivational interviewing and then bring it to the context that you work in and see how it can be adapted or integrated into that context. Dare I say blend. Okay. <laughs> It's it's a, a I think it's lovely that sort of sense of what's um, coming together for me of those pieces burn of, of the jigsaw puzzle. Your question was around about do you you know your thinking at the minute is forming and this is um, these are families where they're in an unfamiliar place, disconnected from everything that's familiar to them, and you're um, in this position where you can um, sort of be helpful to them. Yeah, that's ultimately be helpful to them in some way. Yeah. And this, where am I, I suppose, in the, the, the where we're are evolving, thinking around a theory, around that evolutionary sense of how we can create the conditions that everything quietens down, that the sense of having to be hyper alert because it's all so unfamiliar and, you know, I'm alien and I'm not from here and I'm not, I don't belong, I'm not from this place. All of those things that keep us on the margins and keep yeah, us exactly. connected. And then I think this is where I think uh, it's more than just that um, 
sort of uh, atmosphere that we create purposely, but that we then invite. We invite their thoughts, their, 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 you know, it's a sense of what we're talking about and Steve mentioned about tapping into that wisdom and what Joel's mentioning about, you know, they have brought from their displaced people, but they have brought a huge amount of wealth of wisdom and their familiarity. So getting curious and inviting and exploring together in a way that helps them assimilate their thinking about how they may survive and flourish and thrive in this new place. <laughs> That's just what was going on for me. So I think you're on a, on a winner there in your thinking. <laughs> yeah, I think, bye, Terry. Thank you so much. Bye, Terry. Thanks so much. I think Terry might be cross with you just as well she's gone because I can share a quick story with you. She's going to be cross with me for saying this, but because it's, it stretches the, elevates compassion to levels that are mind-blowing. But, we, you know, Shona Hodson, I don't know if you're still with us, asked a question about technology and the use of technology and delivery of MI. And I had to write a chapter on remote use of MI for a book that I'm just finishing. And I didn't want to do it from an expert perspective. So I asked my close friend and co-author, Chris Butler, whether I could go and sit with him for a day. So we drove up into the Welsh Valleys, into one of the most deprived and marginalized communities where he works as a general family physician. And I spent most of the day sitting there watching this man on the telephone. And his use of reflective listening and, you know, very good MI consistent consulting with the most bizarre range of constellation of problems among people who are on right on the margins. And we went for a walk afterwards. And I said to him, listen, do you mind if I ask you some, some questions about your behavior on the telephone? He said, sure. And I said, listen, we're both South Africans, so we can talk very directly to each other. I said, listen, there was one thing about your behavior that I found a bit odd. And he said, what was that? I said, you spent a lot of the time with your head almost between your legs when you were talking to people. You know, you were bent over. The telephone was like bent over. And he said, he said, Steve, it's almost like I'm praying. He said, it, it's a state of mind. I have to get into a state of mind to really tune into these people on the telephone. And I found that being in an almost like prayer-like position, the best way of really, really listening to a complex situation. And uh, I thought that was very beautiful um, because it speaks to the, the, the humility of someone working with folk on the margins. And, and uh, that humility and compassion, I, I uh, you know, this is what Terry might think, oh my God, are we turning MI into religion or whatever? But I think that act of supreme compassion and humility on his part, and he was ready with all the expertise, Bernard. I think that's can be the problem is that people think, okay, if you're humble, and you, 
it, you, you lose your expertise, which was simply not the case here. In fact, his, his humility went along beautifully with um, an opportunity to say to somebody, look, I'm gonna have to come to your house in an hour's time because I'm that worried about you. So I'm coming and I'm going to knock on the door. So it's not like you giving up responsibility, but the, but the foundation is one of compassion and deep humility. So I don't know if that help is, is in any way helpful, Bernard, but the, the more remote the medium, the more remote the person, the, gra the greater is the call for humility. I don't know. Um, the more remote the medium and the person, the greater is the need for humility. That rings really true for me, Steve. The, the work that I do now is primarily with uh, pr helping practitioners who talk with people over the telephone, uh, people who are very ill, to help them do advanced care planning, to think about end-of-life decision-making, essentially, and planning for future medical decisions. Uh, and it's all done over the telephone. And I think what you just described is uh, resonates so strongly with me because that sense of unlike when we see people face to face they're coming into our space when we're doing work over the phone we're going essentially into their space they're in their space we're reaching across the telephone line to try to to join them there um and they don't feel the kind of interestingly the kind of intimidation that people often feel when they come into our offices because it's you know our professional practice and where the professional and so on um and it really requires of the practitioner an even greater level of humility and recognition of the need to set aside their uh you know not not their intentions but their biases and their assumptions and uh about what's about to happen to be present to the person through the telephone. And Alan, there's a wonderful thing, that concept that was developed by somebody here in Wales called the inverse care law. Uh, uh, Julian, his name will come to me. He was, he was a family doctor, and I know Mats Hogmark is gonna like to hear this. The inverse care law states that the people in the greatest need are the ones least likely to get the care. Pretty okay. much. That's, that's 1971, he wrote a paper on that, the inverse care law. Um, and we're extending that and saying, therefore, if you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. that, that, that carries certain responsibilities. And, and I agree with Matt's, so the, the person undergoing surgery is in such a vulnerable position. No question, absolutely no question. The more vulnerable and passive someone is, the greater is the need for. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's helpful. 
Everybody, I've got to run. Berna, thank you for bringing that question to us. To get us Chris. onto this. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. Oh, this and conversation about humility, I think, is, is, is an important one to have. And I think there's the individual humility Alan's referring to and the kind of broader issues that are coming up, including in interprofessional teams, professional humility about our role and the, our perspective with the others. And then, the, of course, the issue of cultural humility of anyone we're working with, of respecting that we're not in the spirit of motivational interviewing. We're not here to put these ideas into the person, but to use this as a platform to help elicit from them their own wisdom and their own goals and dreams. So thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks, I've got to run. i got a baby. Go take care of. I will unfortunately need to go as well as I move on with the rest of my work day, but uh, I've, I've loved being with you all. And I thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We'll go ahead and pull, let's go ahead and pull the plug then Steve. It's one o'clock in the morning here. And I have <laughs> well, to get you're, a bloody, you're a bloody hero. That's all I'll say. It's incredible, <laughs> man. Uh, I agree with you. And thank you, everybody. Um, I just had a rugby ball kicked over the fence. So it's clear that, that yeah, some yeah. of the children are hey, wanting to. Sorry we couldn't get to everybody's uh, questions because there are some lovely questions in there. But maybe we'll do uh, another version of this conversation down the road. Absolutely. We got the next one lined up, which is sparked by Burner, I think. So the next <laughs> okay, one. great. The next webinar will be on cultural things, Bernard. So thank you very much for wow. coming on board. Thank That'll you. be fun. I look forward to working that one out with you, Steve. Yeah, we'll All make right, it guys. happen, Bernard. Kathy, we'll get Bernard, Bernard nice to meet you. Thank Bye, you guys. my friend. Kathy, my friend. Bye. See you later. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Kathy. Bye.